I'd like to greet all those of you who are gathered with us to, this morning to worship our great God. Welcome. Hello. I invite you to uh, turn in God's word to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. And I hope you will feel, as I feel, that this is one of the great high points in the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Let's hear God's word together. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are in Christ today. We are following him, trusting him, not because of any goodness in us, but because of your gracious initiative in our lives. We are your children entirely because of what you have done. Our salvation is a gift from beginning to end, and for that we praise you. Father, we pray that our understanding of the depth of your grace and love would increase as we meditate on this passage today. Help us to see your boundless goodness, O oh God, which stretches all the way to the beginning of time uh, and all the way into the future. Father, help us to live joyfully uh, for your glory as we understand your love for us and your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it this morning, we ask. Amen. Uh, so many years ago, when I was in high school, uh, I came across a book that really helped me better understand God's grace. Prior to reading that book, my basic conception of the Christian life went something like this, roughly speaking. Uh, Jesus did everything we need to be saved. We believe in that, and God saves us, so we are saved by grace. But once we're saved, then we've got to sort of roll up our sleeves and really get, put our back into it and make progress more or less in our strength. Uh, I had a category for praying to God for help. Basically, you had to stay the course and grow. 
Uh, but I read this book. I'm not going to mention the title because in retrospect, it wasn't uniformly helpful. Uh, it was helpful on this point. Uh, but I read this book, and it really helped me understand God's grace, not just in terms of converting people, but in helping them grow. It made a huge difference in my life. Um, it, it, it caused me to pray with more fervency and joy. It caused me to feel closer to God. And, and that was because I discovered a layer of grace I didn't know about. Like God's goodness and grace would even d- went even deeper than I thought. And the response was a, a transformation, a renaissance in, in my own life. Uh, and that's one of the ways we grow as believers. Like we think we know how good and gracious God is. But then as we continue to grow in our knowledge of God's word, we find that there are layers of grace, depths of grace and goodness that we weren't even aware of. And as that truth about Jesus and God sinks into our heart, we experience greater love and joy. And this passage, I think, is one of those great passages that help us to appreciate the depth and breadth of God's love and grace to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, We will note three things as we look at this passage. Uh, First, Jesus' sheep will respond to him. Jesus' sheep will respond to him. That's one. Second, Jesus protects his sheep from perishing. Jesus protects his sheep from perishing. And three, Jesus and the Father are one. Hope that as we see God's grace in this passage, his goodness to us, our hearts will, will expand with love and adoration for him. So let's, uh, let's plunge in. First thing, Jesus' Jesus's sheep respond to him. Notice the context of what Jesus says here. It's the Feast of Dedication. Uh, this feast would commemorate an event that took place about 200 years before. There was a Syrian named uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, and he, in 167 BC, desecrated the temple. Um, and then at about 164, 163, uh, Judas Maccabeus, a Jew, uh, wrested control of the temple from uh, Antiochus, who got it back to the Jews, and it was reconsecrated to God's purposes. It's Hanukkah. And this is a, a celebration of that great event. And it's in this context that the Jews approach Jesus and they say to him, Hey, stop keeping us in suspense. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised king and to be clear they're asking this not because they're eager to believe in him but because they're eager to accuse him they're not they're saying it as adversaries not you know willing followers of jesus um now jesus responds to them verse 25 and he says i told you and you do not believe he it's, it's important to be clear about what jesus means here he, he hasn't told them in the sense that he has directly told them that he is the messiah or christ Jesus is very careful about publicly stating that he's the Christ uh, because he is almost certainly going to be misunderstood by, the, by his Jewish contemporaries. They're looking for like a political Messiah, a guy who will come and fight and save them from the Romans, and if he says that, they're almost certainly going to misunderstand. Uh, in various other contexts, more private contexts, though, Jesus will stay, state pretty straightforwardly that he is the Christ. John 4, for example, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, tells us that he tells her that he's the Christ, and he tells his disciples as well. Uh, But he says that he has told them in a certain sense, not because he's told them directly, but because his words and works up to this point point in that direction. Uh, He has told them, for example, earlier in the chapter that he is the good shepherd, the ultimate leader of Israel. It's just a small step from that claim about himself to the Messiah. Uh, He's told them he's the, the bread of life and the light of the world. And he has, he has told them all of these things about himself in the context of performing these spectacular miracles. All of these things are pointing to him as the Christ or Messiah. He says, I told you, and you did not believe. It's important to recognize that John gives us a variety of different perspectives on unbelief in the Gospel of John. 
uh, these perspectives harmonize, but they look at unbelief from different vantage points. So for example, in John 3, uh, Jesus tells us that uh, people reject him, they disbelieve because they love the darkness. They would prefer to live in rebellion against God, do things their own way, rather than come to God. They recoil at his purity and they delight in their state of rebellion, and so they disbelieve. Uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus says people disbelieve because they don't believe Moses, they don't believe the Old Testament, the law, uh, which points to Jesus, and they fail to see that. John 8, Jesus says that people disbelieve because they are under the influence, under the sway of Satan. He has blinded them. In John 9, he, he says people disbelieve because of their spiritual pride. They fail to see their need, their great need for a Savior, their great need for light from above, and because of that pride and lack of self-awareness, they disbelieve. Well, here also in John 10, we get another perspective on unbelief. And Jesus says, the reason they don't believe, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. What does that mean? Uh, notice it's somewhat counterintuitive. He doesn't say, uh, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. Uh, notice that the reason they don't believe is because, is because they are not sheep. Right? We might be inclined to think, uh, you know, you believe and then become a sheep. Jesus is saying the reverse. First, you're a sheep, and because you're a sheep, you believe. Being a sheep precedes and explains faith, not the other way around. Because you are not sheep, you don't believe. So how is it that you become a sheep? Well, Jesus hints at this in verse 29 where, where he says, The Father uh, who has given them to me is greater than all. The Father has given a people to the Son. In grace and kindness, he has chosen a people for himself. He has given them to the Son. These are the sheep, and it's precisely because of God's prior gracious giving of these sheep to the Son that they believe. It's the prior gracious choosing of God that finally explains their faith in him. Now, this is a theme, incidentally, throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, same kind of issue arises in John chapter 6. Uh, many are turned off at what Jesus says. Uh, they don't believe. And Jesus responds to that unbelief and explains why they don't believe. John 6, 36. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever come I will never cast out. All those that the Father has given to the Son will certainly come to him. They will inevitably respond to the voice of the shepherd. You don't come, Jesus says, because you are not my sheep. John 8, 47, Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Again, notice how the order is reversed and perhaps slightly unexpected and counterintuitive. We might think you believe and that's how you become of God. But Jesus says, you are of God and therefore you believe. It's God's prior gracious choosing of a people that explains why they believe. Those who belong to Jesus, those whom the Father has given to him, will certainly and inescapably hear his voice. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those whom the Father has given to the Son will certainly hear his voice and respond in faith. In the final analysis, if you want to get right down to the very root of your faith, why do you believe? Many reasons, but in the final analysis, if we want to speak of ultimate cause, why do we believe? In the final analysis... It is because God has graciously, contrary to 
all merit in you. There is no goodness in you that, ca- that causes God to look upon you with favor. Contrary to your merit, out of his sheer goodness and grace, he set his love upon you, and he gave you to the Son for salvation. That's why you believe. You believe because the Father loved you and gave you to the Son. This truth is emphasized all over the place in Scripture. Difficult though it may be in some respects, it is nevertheless emphasized and with some frequency. Acts 13, 48, 48, for example, Paul is preaching the gospel and many respond. And here's how that response is characterized. As many were as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Think about that. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. Apart from anything in them, God graciously chose to grant them life. And so they believed. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, just another passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him, before the, before the foundation of the world. God looked at us at our worst when we had nothing to offer and said, I want them to be my people. He graciously chose us and sent us a savior. The final analysis, we believe not because we are wiser than anyone else, not because there's a spark of goodness in us that isn't in other people. We believe uh, because God had mercy on us and drew us to himself according to his good pleasure. That's what we believe. Now, I get that when you say that, there's like a million questions that arise. I get that. Can't answer them all, uh, not only because I don't have time, but also ignorance. <laughs> there, there are many, many of these questions that I almost certainly can't answer. Uh, nevertheless, I'll do my best. If, if you have questions that remain unanswered after the message today, I'm going to be available for forever uh, outside in the back of the parking lot. And I would love to just spend the afternoon theologizing with you, asking questions, wrestling with these things. They would give me great joy, so be aware that I'm available uh, to help you to some extent, hopefully. Uh, but, but what I want you to, before you ask any other question concerning God's election of his people, just ask yourself this fundamental one. Is it taught in Scripture? Is it clearly taught in Scripture that God, according to his goodness and mercy, chooses a people, and that's why they ultimately come to believe in him. And if it's clearly taught in Scripture, accept it as God's very word to you, even when you don't understand how it fits with other things that you might know in Scripture. Uh, Let God be God. Let God be God, even when he doesn't fit into your neat categories. Perhaps you don't see how this truth about God fits with some other truth. Live in the tension. Just say, I don't know how these two truths fit, but I know the scripture affirms both, and so I'm going to affirm both, and I'm going to trust that God knows even as I don't. It's a better move than taking one truth and pitting it against another and saying, okay, well, I reject that because of this other truth. Live in the mystery of it all. There are many things about God we don't know. In fact, if this is his word and divinely inspired, isn't that what you'd expect? There'd be a lot lot of truths in here that aren't intuitive, that are challenging. Well, this is certainly one of them. Um... But in response to what is a a common question uh, that might arise in light of this teaching, uh, the question is this, um, how is God, how is it fair for God to choose some and not others? How is it fair for God to choose some and not others? Uh, Let me respond to that question by pointing out that it assumes God owes grace to everybody. It assumes that God is obligated to choose everybody. But is he? Is God responsible to choose everybody? Uh, 
we know that the only thing we can claim from, from God as rebels and sinners is his judgment. The only thing that a person deserves outside of Jesus Christ is judgment. We've all been unfaithful to our creator. We've rebelled against his commands. We have done what we've wanted instead of what he's want, wanted from us. And God is right and good to punish us. That's the only claim on God that we have apart from Jesus. A claim to judgment and justice. Grace, on the other hand, is by definition undeserved. Grace is unmerited goodness. Nobody deserves grace. That's a contradiction in terms. Grace is by definition that is that which is undeserved, that which is a gift. God is not obligated to give grace. He is free to withhold and distribute his goodness as he in his wisdom and goodness and love sees fit. And we just trust that he knows what he's doing and he knows best. But he is not unjust in withholding something that he never owed to anyone to begin with. But he is remarkably gracious in choosing uh, to give life to a people. That's how we might think about this whole question of fairness. But in the final analysis, this truth about God, this truth that God graciously chooses some for life, this truth should not lead us to debate and speculate incessantly. This truth is meant to cause our heart to soar in adoration. This truth is meant to underscore the fact that at every stage of our salvation, it is a gift. We contributed nothing to our salvation, and from, the be from beginning to end, from A to Z, it is God's undeserved gift to us. When God in eternity past uh, looked at us at our worst, in our fallenness and misery and rebellion, he said, I want these people to be my people. And in love, he chose us to be recipients of his grace. And then he freely, in grace, sent his son into the world to accomplish their salvation to die and rise again that they might be washed of their sin and reconciled to God. And in grace, he sent the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation, to open our eyes, to see our need, and to believe. And in grace, he continues to uphold us until that final day when in grace, he will raise us from the dead to new life and we will be glorified with him. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. We contributed nothing except our sin and his goodness and grace accounts for our being in Christ from beginning to end. When we recognize how deep the love and grace of God goes, the response should be one of love and uh, adoration and response. James Boyce uh, makes this observation. If we have a part in salvation, then our love for God is diminished by just that amount. If it is all of God, then our love for him must be boundless. So in the final analysis, this truth is meant to simply fill our hearts with gratitude to a to a God who saves us from beginning to end. Second thing to notice is that Jesus keeps his sheep from perishing. Uh, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying that all those who belong to him, all the sheep that the Father has given to him, will certainly make it to the other side safely. He will certainly bring them into that renewed creation where there is no more sorrow and tears, where the glory of God fills the earth. Uh, he will certainly bring them in, and they won't perish or get lost along the way. Jesus is saying that all those who truly belong to him, who, who are his through faith, will not experience spiritual ruin along the way, but will make it home safely. And why? Uh, he, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The hand of Christ is too strong. 
No one and no thing is able to separate him from his people. He will guard them and protect them until they arrive safely home. That adds, I think, a really important perspective on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like we understand that Jesus is our Savior in the sense that he came into the world to bear the judgment and wrath of God on our behalf. At the cross, he paid the full price for our sins and rose again triumphantly in the resurrection. Like we get that he offered himself uh, as a sin offering to take away sin, and in that sense, he saves us. And all those who believe in him are forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to God. Praise God, that's true. But there's another sense in which Jesus saves us. Right now, as he reigns in power and glory at the right hand of God, as our good shepherd, he is protecting us from spiritual ruin. He is intervening in our lives in countless ways to keep us from being spiritually destroyed. I mean, we, we all recognize that this world is a spiritually dangerous place, full of uh, traps and temptations and difficulties of various kinds. And because he's the good shepherd who protects his sheep, he uses en encouragements of our brothers and sisters, the warning passages of scripture, um, difficulties, adversity, all kinds of means to keep us safe. He does for us what he did for his disciples. Uh, near the end of John's gospel, in chapter 17, Jesus actually prays for his disciples, and ultimately, interestingly, even us, as we'll see. Uh, but one of the things he prays for the disciples as he anticipates leaving them through, in his crucifixion and resurrection is that God would keep them. Uh, here's what he says. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And then he says, Father, now that I'm leaving, keep them. But notice what he says, I guarded them, I protected them spiritually, and because I protected and guarded them, not one has been lost. That's what Jesus does. He secures our, our salvation by dying and rising again, but then he also intervenes in our lives to keep us from being spiritually destroyed. He will do whatever it takes to keep us on the right path. Jesus will never passively watch you drift from him into sin and rebellion and not do anything. He will intervene painfully, if necessary, to keep us going in the right direction. Again, James Boyce, I think, sums it up well. God does not permit us to continue on our way unhindered when, when the way is towards sin. He disciplines us for our good. He prods, he, he prods us, woos us, sometimes even makes our lives miserable so that we will get out of the path of destruction and back onto the road that he has mapped out for us. When Jesus sees you wandering towards destruction, he doesn't just sit in heaven and watch. As the good shepherd, he runs and he intervenes in a variety of ways to keep you going in the right direction so you will get safely home. That's also a sense in which Jesus saves us, by guarding us from spiritual ruin. And that's comforting. I mean, if you look at your heart, can you see what's in there? The pollution, the unbelief, all kinds of things that only you are aware of. And you look at all the temptations between now and the hour of our departure from this world, the hour of our death, Michael, I wonder if I'll make it. I, I wonder if I will continue, given the temptations that exist, given my own weakness. But Jesus is saying, because of who I am, you'll make it. I will keep you, I will preserve you to the end. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's a source of tremendous encouragement. Jesus will pr preserve his sheep. What that means is, as you look at your life uh, and recognize that right now you're trusting in Jesus Christ, like in this moment you're believing in Jesus, you need to recognize that the reason you are in the present trusting in Jesus is because he's kept you all these years. 
The, the suffering you have, you've experienced hasn't finally destroyed your faith. He's kept you through that. Uh, false teaching, uh, he's protected you from that. He's protected you from uh, falling into sin and uh, turning away from him. He's protected you from all of those things, and he has kept you to this point. If you're still trusting in him today, it is because of his faithfulness and grace, and understand that that faithfulness and grace will continue. So he's the good shepherd who protects his sheep. But notice, interestingly, it's not just the son who protects the sheep, it's also the father. Verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus' point is God is greatest of all. Uh, His purposes can't be thwarted. If God wants to save his people, who can stop him? If God wants to give life to those who belong to him, who can thwart the purpose and plan of God? God has determined to save a people. He's going to do it because he's God. So the son is holding on to us to keep us from being wrested out of his hand, and so is the father. The father and the son together are holding on to us so that we would persevere to the end. They do this, Jesus says in verse 30, because I and the father are one. This is a joint effort. This oneness in view in verse 30 Uh, in the immediate context, includes oneness of purpose. The Father and the Son are committed to keeping God's people safe. But it also points, as we'll see in a moment, to oneness of being. We'll come back to that in a moment. The glorious truth is the Father and Son are holding on to each of us to bring us safely home. That means that more sure than the fact that the Son will rise tomorrow is the fact that you will one day rise from your grave in the context of a renewed creation with a glorified body. It's not a question of whether you will enter paradise. It's a question simply of when you will enter paradise. Our salvation is absolutely and utterly secure. There are many things, many good things that we enjoy in life that are by no means certain. Uh, You know, careers, wealth, health, relationships. There are many things that can go up in smoke in a moment. But the one thing that we most need Eternal life with God is the one thing that can't be finally lost because God the Father and God the Son have committed themselves to preserving us. We'll be brought safely home. And so that means as we look forward to an uncertain future, we shouldn't look forward with anxiety and dread what might happen to me. We should look forward with a quiet confidence grounded in the certain knowledge that God will bring his people safely home. It's the same confidence that was expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an amazing statement of confidence in Jesus. Do you have that confidence? Nothing can separate us. Whatever happens between now and our death, it's not going to separate us from Jesus. That's the confidence that we should be living with. And when you have that confidence, you're not going to be easily frightened about what may or may not happen to you tomorrow because your future is secured in Christ. Third thing then to notice is that the Father and the Son are one. This is what causes the Jews to become irritated, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And and they understand what he's getting at. This is not simply like a functional oneness. They have the same goal. This is a deeper oneness, a oneness of being. And so they pick up stones and get ready to kill Jesus. Not the first time it happens in the Gospel of John. There are a few moments in the Gospel of John where Jesus says something that clearly points to his divinity and people get ready to kill him. One more of these moments, uh, they pick up stones to kill him and Jesus says, hold on, 
I've done many good works, that includes miracles, among you. Which of these works are you going to kill me for? And they say, no, 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 it's not for the good works that you've done. Uh, we're going to do it because you are blaspheming. You, a mere man, are saying you are, are making yourself one with God. You notice the irony, by the way, in the context of John's gospel? They're, they're accusing him, a mere man, of making himself God. Whereas John begins the gospel by saying God became man. Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God became man, whereas here they're saying you, a man, are becoming God. So there's an irony within the larger uh, context of the gospel here. Who do, you, who do you make yourself out to be, calling yourself implicitly God? And Jesus responds to this charge of blasphemy by citing Scripture, citing Psalm 82. He says, look at Psalm 82. In that passage, those who are not God, or far from being God, are nevertheless referred to as gods because in some sense they reflect God, and therefore that title is applied to them. They're called gods, Psalm 82. Well, if they, if they can be called gods, then how much more legitimately... Can the one whom God sent into the world be called the Son of God? In other words, if Scripture itself can, by extension, use that word gods of created beings who are not God, then how much more appropriate is it for the eternal Son who came into the world to speak of himself as the Son of God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Your charge of blasphemy doesn't hold. And then Jesus goes on to, to make one final appeal to these people that they would listen. And it's, it's pretty astonishing, actually, when you think about it. These people are ready to kill Jesus. But in mercy and kindness, he's going to make one more appeal to them and call them to believe, despite the fact that they are furious. Verse 37, he says, look, if I'm not doing God's very works, then don't believe in me. But if I am doing the works of God himself, this is another way of saying, if God himself is at work through me, accomplishing his purposes, then even if you're not going to believe me and believe what I'm saying initially, look at the works. Consider the works that I'm doing because these works are in fact the works of God. What Jesus is saying is, look, okay, maybe you don't accept what I'm saying right now. Look at what I'm doing. Consider the fact that I took a man who has been paralyzed for years, and in a moment I raised him up. He jumped up and was able to walk again. Consider the fact that I took a man who was blind from birth, and I gave him sight. Look at what's in front of you. And as you look at the miracles, what conclusion will you come to? You will conclude that God himself is in your midst, that God himself is working, doing his works, and as you come to believe that the works that I'm doing are actually the works of the Father, then you will come to realize that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So as you look at these works and you recognize that this is the Father's work, then it will dawn on you that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That there is a oneness between the Father and the Son and you will see that. It's a pretty incredible statement if you think about it. Jesus is saying that in a sense, he contains the Father and the Father contains him. Theologians talk about that as the doctrine of mutual indwelling. This interpenetration of persons. Such that if you see Jesus, you see God. If you see the Father, you see the Son and you can never have one without the other. 
This is why in John 14, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me. In other words, if you see me, you see the Father. See the Father, you see me. We are so deeply one, is Jesus' answer to their uh, problem with him, that if you behold the Father, you're going to see me. Look at my works, see how they show you the Father, and if you see the Father, you're going to see me. Well, they respond uh, in persistent unbelief. They seek to arrest him, and Jesus ultimately leaves, leaves the region, and others, nevertheless, in a different region, put their faith in him, but they remain hard-hearted. Jesus is, what Jesus said to them, he's saying to us, look at these works that I've done. Look at the way that I have taken this man whose body was utterly broken and the way that I've lifted him up, given him strength, he was able to carry his bed. Look at that. Or consider the man who couldn't see a thing from the moment he entered this world and I gave him sight. What you need to recognize is that this is no ordinary human being doing what an ordinary human being does. There is power from heaven invading the world, erasing the effects of sin and restoring life. My works point to the fact that God himself has shown up. God himself has come on the scene of human history and is doing works that only God can do. God has, if you like, written himself into the story as one of the characters. And when we see Jesus, we see God in the flesh. We're supposed to look at his works and then stand back, and it should hit us. There should be this moment of amazed astonishment. Wait a minute. This is God in our midst doing the works that only God can do. Once again, we see, and the Gospel of John reinforces this, that God's highest, final, and climactic revelation of himself to mankind comes through his son, Jesus. We see in Jesus what God is like in the depth of his being. To see the Son is to see the Father. And that means then that to reject Jesus Christ, to reject his offer of salvation is not finally to reject simply another man, another man with another opinion about God. It is to finally reject God himself. God in Christ has come into the world to extend his hand in friendship. He has come into the world to bring salvation to a lost humanity. And he says, this is the truth about who I am. Do you believe me? Will you come and follow me? That's what the stakes are this morning. If this morning you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God made flesh, as the Savior of sinners, you are not just rejecting a message from a man who lived 2,000 years ago. You are rejecting the voice of the living God which speaks even to you today. Come to me and live. Those who persist in their rebellion and unbelief will finally perish, will be finally separated from God and lost in their sins. But those who come to him, acknowledging him to be who he claims to be, the son of God incarnate, and who trust in him as their savior, will find peace with God. As John says, they will have passed from death to life. They will have passed from condemnation to acceptance. This morning, if you are resting in Jesus, 
that acceptance, that peace, that reconciliation to God is yours. And the call to every single one of us this morning is trust in the Son of God and experience eternal life thereby. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, uh, what, what can we say in response to the goodness, grace, and love that you have shown us? We are grateful to you for all that you have done for us. We are grateful to you for drawing us to yourself and preserving us. And we pray that your mercies would set our hearts on fire with a love for you and a commitment to you that expresses itself in increasing obedience, Lord. Take your word, apply it deep to our hearts, and cause us to reflect you more and more. Amen.